Hi, and welcome to the Thank God for the Beatles podcast. If this is your first time, welcome, and if you are returning, it's great to have you back. I'm Karen, and joining me as co-host is my brother, Jeff. Hi, everybody. And our episode today features the Beatles' most amazing album, With the Beatles, slash um, Meet the Beatles, which is the capital release. And quite frankly, it's hard to put into words the impact of this album and how it changed so many lives over the years, uh, you know, over 50 years now. And um, we're just going to get into the recording of the album, um, background, interesting tidbits that we have found. And I always like to start off with first impressions. And so when this album was released in the fall of 63, November 22nd, 1963, uh, I was a baby, baby, baby. So I'm I'm coming to this album from a few years after that. And what struck me, number one, was the back cover. And it was the Beatles in their Edwardian collarless gray suits and the Beetle boots. I was fascinated by the Beetle boots. And I think I spent the next, you know, my early childhood drawing Paul's violin bass and the Cuban heel beetle boots. And what always uh, tickled me or, or always made me think about things was that Paul's heels and that picture on that back of the album, they're much lower than John and George and Ringo's heels. And I'm like, wow, was that done on purpose? Was that to keep them more uh, John, Paul, and George at the same height? But it was just something that always stuck with me. And so when I would draw the Beatles, I would always have that precision to keep the lower heel. So aside from the amazing music and the great music, it was the impact of the men, of the boys. And so Jeff, you were much, you were present during that time. You were, tell me about what you, when that album came out, what hit you? Well, I really wasn't aware of the Beatles at all until the Ed Sullivan show, which was part of a huge promotion of the Beatles in February of, of when the album had come out January 20th of 1964 in the United States as Meet the Beatles. Uh, maybe I've heard it on the radio, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, but I don't really remember specifically hearing that. What I do remember is the visual of seeing them on Ed Sullivan, uh, all three shows, and hearing the screams and watching them perform and just totally transfixed by them. I think that it made an imprint that never left me. It's just like you um, had suggested earlier that the Beatles basically were what the boys wanted to be and what the girls desired. So uh, for me, I said, well, like Lennon said when he looked at Elvis, he said, that's a good job. And of course, I wanted to be like one of them. It was great. I I never forgot that. One thing I do remember, though, um, the first Beatle record I was conscious of seeing physically was in my Aunt Louise's house. I don't recall exactly when we were there, but when we went there, I believe it was on a different label than Capital. It was called VJ, which was another subsidiary that didn't last very long, and they hadn't even put out an album uh, at that time. Oh, because the Beatles couldn't get a, right, a uh, right. deal to exactly. distribute their music in the U.S. I believe it was uh, She Loves You back by Thank You Girl, if I'm not mistaken, and it has a black label with white imprint on it. I remember specifically physically how that looked, and 
uh, hearing that record. I think that was another, Im- just another impression I had. That was my first, those are my first recollections of the, of the music and uh, hearing, hearing them and seeing them for the first time. So the, the stage in 1963 is that they had released Please Please Me earlier in 63, I believe, February, right. mm-hmm. and had hits with Love Me Do, From Me to You started to break them out, and constantly on tour, on television, doing performances, and really becoming much more prominent in Britain. Huge in Britain. Oh, yeah, they were already reaching a, a number one status in Britain. But not quite the Beatlemania yet, but no, still not Beatlemania, very... close to it. They were approaching that. Uh, they were establishing themselves in Britain heavily on a heavy rotation, and but the Americans were, uh, of course, were burned. Capitol Records, in particular, uh, did not release the first three singles that uh, we offered. They offered them, which included "For Me to You," "Please Please Me." Those were roundly rejected, and the reason they were rejected is because a guy named Dave Dexter, who was sort of like the uh, the, the monitor, the head, not the head, but Alan Livingston was the president of Capitol in the United States, but he trusted this guy Dexter, who hated rock and roll. He just didn't like it. That so, beat, beat music was never going to make it. Right. So he said no. Uh, he rejected that. So what happened is what broke the Beatles in the United States, thank God for Brian Epstein, uh, he decided that I want to hold your hand, that he went personally and went politely above Dave Dexter's head and met with Alan Livingston. Now, Alan Livingston had also dismissed them as a bunch of, quote, long-haired kids. They're nothing. Forget it. And so when Brian went to visit him and played him the single, and then that basically changed Mr. Livingston's mind, and somehow he got him to agree to a $40,000 budget. It was to, $50,000, $50, um, what I read. Somewhere in that figure. That's a lot of shocking, money for that time. Shocking amount of money. And they thought, and, and he warned me, he said, well, I really don't think it's going to go anywhere. And why? Because British acts in the United States in 1963 did not, a lot of them failed. They just did not make it. The Americans were not ready for it. So uh, I believe that what changed that uh, was because of the uh, unfortunate timing of the release of with the Beatles with um, John F. Kennedy's President Kennedy's assassination. America was in the in the grip of a grim atmosphere, which um, indirectly I believe and uh, made the American audience ready for something bright something positive something energetic and and when the beatles offered that so if they had released i believe if the american capital records had released those beatles singles earlier they might have joined they possibly might have joined this cavalcade of failures from britain because americans weren't prepared i think at this time in january that release was timed beautifully so well back to the original recording which was with the beatles uh, long playing album in Britain. They started recording in July of 63 to about October 23rd. And mm-hmm. they had a couple of uh, bits and bops where they were on tour where it kind of got set aside. Uh, and this is the stage where they start to bring in their own songs, more songs, and where John and Paul are really beginning to focus on their songwriting. Mm-hmm. And uh, just before I get, before we get into the songs individually, in October of 63, you know, add this to the pile of all of the instances that are here happening in order to drive this train, the, the, the locomotion that's going, that's building power and steam, and it's just moving forward, and, and P. 
people are hearing it and they're getting absorbed and desiring more. And so, uh, you know, the Beatles play for a play at the uh, Sunday night at the London Palladium with Queen, the Queen Mother, and Princess Margaret, and, and they've just played four songs, and they killed it. Oh, thankfully, that's been recorded on tape and and uh, and restored forever. Well, probably because they're and because of the venue and they're entertaining the Queen. They did a great job, which included "Till There Was You." By the way, uh, just so you know that "Till There Was You" was actually the song that got them the audition for Decca, which was George Martin's label. It was a smaller label, and he wanted to get. His goal at that time uh, was to get another teen idol to sing, and and he imagined that Paul, with his voice, would be the lead singer. So they picked a soft song, a cover song written by a Meredith Wilson who for the musical The Music Man. But what you did get to hear, even though it was a softer side, was beautiful guitar work between uh, George Harrison and John Lennon and, and Paul's vocal. That got them in their audition. To EMI. Well, they also use they also play that song a lot at the Cavern and in mm-hmm. Hamburg as well. It was a part of their repertoire. And they were going to plan to sing it at the Palladium, and they were going to enter sing it for Ed Sullivan. So that's the. I just want to. I know we're kind of jumping ahead, but I wanted to say that the importance of that particular track and that audition uh, was got them. It wasn't the raucous rock and roll. It was that song, but that got them in, opened the door. Thank God for Brian Epstein. Thank God for George Martin. Yes, indeed. And George Martin had good ears and said, okay. So here we get the, the With the Beatles album, uh, November 22nd, 1963 in England or Great Britain. And uh, you look at the cover and yeah. the cover is one of a kind. Um, I love that cover. Can I tell you? Uh, Astrid Kirscher, who was their German photographer, took a similar picture, and this is when influenced they're, they're them. Fresh. they asked for that. That yes. was, and that was their fresh new French quote long hair beetle cup, which for that had, time was had long it for hair, a while, but they'd had it for a while. They'd had it for a while. So, and but that was their long beetle cup. So they wanted something similar to that, and that was like a three minute session, a very quick. No, it was blank, longer blank than that. It was uh, an hour. They took a few. I said, well, what I read was said something else. But. And I, it's the beauty of reading all these different Beatles sources. Everybody has who's a different wrong? story. Who's wrong? I mean, who's right and who's wrong? <laughs> they said it was 30 minutes in Everybody and out. Everybody has a different story. Black backdrop. Well, there were a couple of picks from that one where they had a very serious, you know, artiste uh, appearance on that. I love that cover. And Capitol was smart to keep the same cover of With the Beatles for Meet the Beatles. And what Capital did was they took that and and had all this information on the back cover to introduce the American audience to the Beatles. And uh, so the back covers, I believe, were different uh, between the two between the two countries. Uh, that's a main difference. But that front cover is another imprint on your mind. That's how they looked. It was mysterious. It was sleek. It was like four guys. Who are they? You know, where did they come from? It was brilliant. It was brilliant. So yeah, I love the cover. It's a it's a classic picture. It really sucks you in with that picture, and when you flip it over and you get to read about them, and you also mm-hmm. again you get to see them posing in their gray suits and the uniformity of it. But it's the newness of the again 
to appreciate the hair. And, and as I will say, maybe it was just the boots and the hair that did I, it. Sorry. I think it's the boots and the I'm, hair. My dear sister, I'm sorry, but the boots never moved me. I never noticed, cared about the boots or noticed oh, the boots. come on. I noticed that they all had the same kind you know of what, suits on. All the boys in, in the 60s bought the Cuban heel boots. I didn't. I well, didn't know that's well, our, was, our mother. I was seven years old. I didn't know anything about the boots, nor did I notice the boots. I just noticed they were all kind of dressed the same. One looked a little taller than the other. They all had friendly expressions that's what i remember about that cover and that there was a lot of great information on it promoting them their their already existing success also vj at that time after when the release of meet the beatles did put out on its own uh introducing the beatles which covers the first album we'll get uh called please please me has a lot of those tracks on it so this is again the second album the beatles had made released in britain and then we had an american version that we'll talk about that uh, in a while but i love that cover and, you know, even with the Beatles, which I had to get used to because that's not the one I grew up with, I still think it's a great record. So let's go for it. Well, and, you know, if you think about the cover, you think about how many current bands uh, have made a, like a parody of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there could probably be a blog on just all the different people who have done that. So um, take, for instance, the Ruttles, you know, I mean, it's it's everything, all the covers. There's a lot of covers um, artistic covers and it was, but it was simple, elegant, well-stated in uh, black and white, just like a hard day's night was, we got to see the Beatles at first in black and white. I wonder what it would have been like if I had seen them in color because in black and white, it made them almost otherworldly. I think it kind of added to that element of mystery. I think that it was, it worked. Well, we're kind of getting off the topic, but the Ed but. Sullivan piece was, the brilliant stage construction and the visuals that they wore of the suits. I mean, it was, and just how enthusiastic they were, but we could do a whole story just on Ed Sullivan, a whole podcast on that. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on where they are is that, you know, when they started recording, please, please me, they were very um, eager students of George Martin who really held all of the cards, mm -hmm. helped them, you know, as they struggled through, some of the songs and getting the tempos right. They really were green. They, they were de young they're men. They're very 20, dependent on George Martin. 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So as they move into this album, they begin to write their own songs and they begin to hear things their own way and to start to speak up. So when we lead off the, with the Beatles, the British LP, it starts with It Won't Be Long, which is a John Lennon song. And... I think it starts off with the beautiful guitar pring whenever. No, no, that's the, the, that, that pring. That, oh, that was I all think, I've got to do. Thing all I got to do. I, only, I listened to that like 10 times. Actually, this was intended, I think, George Martin. You also have to mention that the Beatles had the luxury with their second record to use a four track, even though EMI had reserved that mostly for classical and other types of recordings. The Beatles insisted on having the full range of the four track recording. Uh, to please their fans, they wanted to improve even at the I, start. I think that was just for "I Want to Hold Your Hand." I no, it was it was extended into the album. No, I, I think that they were using that for the album. For instance, they wanted to re-record "You Really Got a Hold on Me" uh, in that form track because everything prior to that was two track. So that's why you hear that when the artificial stereo it sounded almost a little hokey with all the instruments on one side and vocals on the other. But "It Won't Be Long" was actually supposed to be the pot boiler. All right, they're supposed to be the rocker, and it is. It's a great song, um, and it's got a great vocal, call-and-answer type vocal. I think that that's heavily influenced by um, 
the R&B that they were listening to at the time, American R&B. And I think it's, it infiltrates their vocal styles, the call and answer. It won't be long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call in the end. Uh, and I think that was going on kind of like with the Motown sound in the exactly. US as well. And that's kind of where I get that from. It won't be long till I belong to you. Since you left me, I'm so long. It's, it's a great vocal by John. And John heading it off. And I think what you have in the pattern here is it starts off um, with original songs in a series of at least one, two, three, four, five original songs before they get to a cover song which introduces the Beatles as songwriters, uh, as pop songwriters, and what a what a lineup. Interesting a- fact about It Won't Be Long is that it was the first song that Neil Young performed for an audience. It was the high school cafeteria uh, concert, which he also, I believe, sang Money. <laughs> thank, thank God you thank God you read all this stuff. I, I had no idea about that. Well, kudos to Neil Young. I like him even more now, so... That's yeah. great. Yeah. The, the, by the way, there's a great book. It's called Beatles Songs by William J. Dowling, Dow, Dowdling, and it was released in 89, and he gives a nice summary of um, recording and interesting facts about the song. So it leads off with this great song, and, and the next song is All I've Got to Do, and I have to say that I, I listen to that probably 10 times a week. I um, still listen to it. I love that song. There's a kind of mystery to it. It was opening chord and then John starting off the vocal before they start playing. And it's almost, it's almost like reggae-fied before we knew about reggae. And it, again, I think that's ext- it's very Motown, the whole thing. I think that John Lennon purposefully aimed for that. He wanted to sound like Smokey Robinson. Yes, and he, he did. in fact, they cover a Smokey Robinson song, literally. But he wanted to, and even... Um, even when he was doing Double Fantasy with Yoko, she, she'd hear him singing Woman, and she'd say, oh, you're doing the Beagle voice. She says, no, dear, that's me doing um, Smokey Robinson, okay? Because the Beatles were trying to do sound like Smokey Robinson. And on that song, all I've got to do with great chords and the great vocal and how it builds, it's just, for me, one of my very favorite all-time songs. It's one even I like to perform, so. Well, the energy that they having it between the the drums the the bass drum Paul's bass lines and the singing I mean it is it's unlike I think it's just unlike other th- right. anything else that you would have been hearing at that time and the backing vocals too are tight uh and on it they created all that that's their own song so they built that up that's it's beautiful I love it and Speaking of that, I mean, I don't know what else I can say about all I've got to do. If you guys don't know that song, go listen to it now, okay? Look it up, listen to it. You're going to love it like we do. Um, All My Loving, that song, All My Loving, that's the next in line. And All My Loving is, again, introduction to Paul. And And Paul wrote the lyrics first, which was unusual for him, and brought the lyrics and then came in with, the music and talk about talk about a great song that was written. I mean, it was buoyant, it was fun. It's for perhaps uh, you know a new love, which was happening in his real life. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm just trying to think of what George Martin was just like, just a thunderstruck. It's a great this. love song, actually. It's a great love song that's taken and played and performed as a dance number. Uh, a brilliant dance number. 
Uh, but you could take that same melody, close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow, I'll miss you. Remember, I'll always be true. Typical uh, love song lyrics, but taken in the context of of a great melody, one of the best melodies I think he's ever written. And then you could do that slowly or quickly. I think it stands as uh, an early heralding of what was to come, a Paul's uh, genius coming out in that song. And not only that, but the bass playing, the walking up and uh, down. I mean, the, the scales, it's just, uh, it was different because it was movement within that song. It creates mm-hmm. a lot of movement and enhances, again, the energy and the enthusiasm versus just a dun, dun, you know, just a simplistic. He nails it. And plus that he could sing it live. Again, how talented is Paul to sing it live? Mm-hmm. And to play these contrapuntal bass lines at the same time, exactly, yeah. and and have pauses in the song where it would go da ba da ba da bump and a pause, and then start with the vocal, and then come in with the backing again on the instrumental, on backing underneath it. It has pauses in it. They actually a song like literally stops at certain points, and, and that contributes to the dynamic energy, right? And so there's dynamism in that in that arrangement. Dynamism is that like a dinosaur? Yes. Just like that. How, how would you know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, John Lennon said about All My Loving, he said, All My Loving is Paul, I regret to say, because it's a damn good piece of work. But I play a pretty mean guitar in back. And that was from the 1980 Playboy interview. And that's a, and he's right, um, because the backing, the guitar work on it is great. It really is. It, it's unforgettable, that middle eight, they call the middle eight section. He and George really rev that up beautifully and he you could tell they enjoyed it they both love the song we love the song paul loves the song i love the song you love the song all my loving all my loving and then next on this album is our friend george harrison our friend jules harrison i had to do it sorry folks jules harrison i had to introduce george because george george is the is uh considered the moody beetle okay and what and a, a relatively new songwriter he was just trying it out and uh, but it's got a great lyric it's very bluesy you notice that uh, percu- the percussion that Ringo plays on it I I got no time for you right now don't bother me after all the loving and happiness and here he comes in saying you know Debbie Downer yeah he's he's the Debbie <laughs> oh, I hate to use that term I'm sorry <laughs> it makes me think of something but. No, it just portrays a different mood, and the Beatles did love blues, all right. And George introduces that song, and it's a, it's great. I'm glad that it's in there because it's a contrast to all the other uh, happy-go-lucky type atmosphere of the of the album. I think it adds, it punctuates it in a way, gives it an extra punch. It's very uh, zippy, I would say. It's just that a nice zippy, beat. zippy. A hello. Did anyone ever say I'm feeling zippy? Well, it's just that it 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 again. It's the um, rhythm of the song. It's not so much that I'm listening to the lyrics, but it's how I hear it, and it's like, oh yeah, I you know I enjoy listening to it. To truly the the beat, and it was written when George wasn't feeling well. Mm-hmm. And one can only imagine it would be like, "Don't bother me." It's like, "Stay out of my hotel room, John and Paul. Leave me alone. I'm not feeling well." Right. Uh, but it was the start for him to be able to contribute and to 
uh, present also as a songwriter, secondary to John and Paul. And I believe that the his guitar playing on it reveals a much more, I've been a more confident player than he had a certain style when he played. And it was extremely focused and energetic and just perfect for the song. Uh, it, it stands out to me. It's, it's as far as early George goes, that's a, that's a track that I don't, I don't usually don't skip over because it's, you know, it, it's like I said, it's got, it's got a punch, it's got a mood, it's got a statement, and then you move on. Uh, what John Lennon said about it, he was replying to um, George Harrison's complaints of mistreatment to his songs, and, and that came from a George interview in, in the fall of 69. And what uh, John said is that we put a lot of work in your songs, even to Don't Bother Me. We spent a lot of time doing all that, and we grooved. So I can remember the riff you were playing. So I think that, you know, John would get a little hurt in years later of uh, having defend defend their their treatment of George. Well, you know what? Um, George is in a, in a great band with great guys. They all have their um, issues with how much creativity and input. There's always that argument between people in a band that some want to... All, when you, all four people have loads of talent and they all want to put something out there. George was younger, too, so there's that issue because a couple years difference then made a difference. He was 20 and there were 20, 22, 23. And he, a little bit of insecurity there. Uh, but John is there just to remind George, says, hey, wait, wait a second. You know, we cared about how you sounded. We cared about, your, you know, making your song sound good. So what's the problem? George. So then we have Little Child, which is Little I, I, Child. I, skip, little child. I skip over Little Child. <laughs> well, you know, Little Child is like when I listen, when I hear that, and I've been I've been listening a lot in my iPod, on my well, actually my iTunes, excuse me, to this album with Little Child, and it's hard for me to kind of sit through it because of the excess of harmonica. You know, John was very good at playing what he called the harp, which is harmonica. But I think it's a bit of overkill on this song. And I think it sounds to me like just a, although he boasts a great vocal, I think it's doubled on there, if I'm not mistaken, the recording. He sings it well. I just think it's just kind of an average piece is it of work. A, is it, it's, it's a, a filler. It's a filler. This sounds to me, and most Beatles songs to me don't come off as filler. This one does. All right. It's filler. You know, sorry, John. Love you, man. But no, that's not my favorite song. So then we get to. Paul's cover and the Beatles cover of Till There Was You, which was already ready an established uh, loved song. And they kind of modeled their version after the Peggy Lee version. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much and the, so. It's such an, I still listen to this all the time. I love George's fl- uh, flamingo work or whatever you want to call it on the flamenco on the, guitar. The guitar. Right. And it's uh, great. It's great. I mean, everything from start to finish. It again is uh, it's a perfect ballad to offset uh, all the high energies, like a a breath, a pause, to show and also to showcase Paul as a young, uh, vibrant vocalist. His vocals very earnest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very you could just see him trying to nail it. And Mm -hmm. we were just talking before we started this about the weird little uh, isms, like when he says "soar," when I soar them. (laughs) Swore them. 
No, I never swore them at all. <laughs> no, I never swore them at all. Never swore them at all. But uh, a great song still stands today. Yeah, written by Meredith Wilson. And again, that we have to say that got the Beatles their audition. And they loved it. They performed it well. So, And you got all the girls swooning. Come on. For Paul. So what's that, what's interesting is that on July 30th, they had this session where at Abbey Road that they recorded It Won't Be Long, Money, Till There Was You, Roll Over Beethoven, and All My Loving to knock those out in essentially one evening like that. Again, it is a testament to the creativity, to the drive, to the work ethic that the Beatles bring. I think it's a testament to the fact that they've been playing those forever. A lot of, some of those songs, uh, they've been playing a great deal. They probably were playing it in live for a long time. So yeah, they, they obviously had rehearsed these and were ready to roll. You know, it, it wasn't like they were building songs that much from scratch at that time. I think they were bringing in tunes that they had ready and we're ready to perform. You had to be because of studio time. You didn't get that much time. And the conditions of the recording, two or four track, you had to go fast. You know, it cost money. EMI didn't want to spend it. They were a new band. They didn't have the luxury of of extended time recording time. Well, when they came into this recording, this album, what they would do is that uh, George Martin would sit on his stool, and then John and Paul would have the usually their their acoustic guitars and they would demo the song for him. And George would begin to think about how he could, uh, bring the song to fruition or to make it improve it or to do whatever he needed to do. There wasn't a lot of orchestration back then. It was really the, uh, verse chorus. However, they were going to do that or chords, or we need a little bit of this. And I think that I just can't imagine. I mean, George Martin having these guys in front of you playing these songs with this, this totally new appreciation for these northern boys coming down. I mean, it's uh, I th- talk about the perfect marriage. We, when we've this has been a consistent thread of our podcast, which is the brilliance of George Martin, but connected with the Beatles of how much they needed each other. It's a synergy, all right, of all those forces put together. Uh, and now this album, uh, this with the Beatles version that they put out, the Beatles love their American covers. They there are songs that they had learned or played. And how did they get these songs? How did they pick them out? For instance, uh, following till there was you as a cover song is please, Mister Postman, which was actually from a girl group. The Marvelettes from 1963, early 1963. And they performed it. I, it was actually, one of my very favorite covers they did, Mr. Six, Postman. 1961. 1961? Okay, that's, thank you. And they performed that. Uh, and they were very fond of taking songs from uh, other R&B acts, American R&B acts. And where did they first hear these records? Well, they were hard to get in England, but Brian Epstein... Again, bless him, had a record store called NEMS, N-E-M-S, and his policy was to have at least one copy of every record released. So then they would go, and George Harrison would detail how they go into the NEMS store and listen to some of these songs, and that's one of the ones they picked up. 
uh, please Mr. Postman. And to this day, that's one that I like. I still like to sing and hear that song. I love the backing vocals on it. So. It's just great, and it's, it's fun. Great. It's just so much fun to listen to. Right. Look and see. And I think it's relevant today, given what are, <laughs> what's happening with our postal service. I'd, I'd like to put that song out there again. Please, Mr. Postman, look and see if there's a letter in your bag for me. And segueing right into Rollover Beethoven, a Chuck Berry cover, mm-hmm. and I think a, po- a powerhouse of a song. Yeah, I mean... These are, I think, one of the top two signature songs from Chuck Berry. And John, of course, was a huge fan of Chuck Berry because he liked the lyrics. He liked the rhythmic nature of it. And But they handed the lead vocal mostly over to George Harrison. And I think it's double-tracked. I'm not sure if the others are singing lead with him, but or, but it is George actually singing, taking the lead on this, plays great guitar on it. Uh, the energy behind it is just unreal. I, you could frankly open a record with that and it basically for an American audience really expanded Chuck Berry's uh, exposure uh, as a songwriter like he needed exposure he was already famous and popular but that even raised him to greater heights and that that particular track really deserved it I thought they gave a stellar performance on it everything the bass the guitar playing mm-hmm. the Again, it's, I, I just think you hear it and it's like, what am I experiencing? You're just like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. It's, it's just a, great. It's, it's a, like a, it, it's a fast, rollicking dance track, really. It's rock and roll, pure. Uh, and it really establishes them. So the next song is Hold Me Tight on the album. Um, and Hold Me Tight is a... Paul creation with a little bit of contribution from John and um, Lennon says that uh, basically both of us wrote it, but it was mostly Paul. And I always laugh. I think it's, I kind of skip over it, but I I laugh when I listen to it because it's like some of it to me sounds a little wobbly. Like when he sings, don't know, it's like, is he trying to like waver his vo- voice or, co- you know, I don't know what's. <laughs> he goes, he goes in his voice, don't know no, it's what weird. it means. You sound like you're getting a little hoarse there. I'm not going to actually sing it. I'm, I'm just trying to give some of the intonation. Uh, I see what you're saying. It sounds a little bit slangy. He's almost veering off to the it's key. It's a little off. It, it always sounds off key. It may not be, but it sounds like it's, it's headed really, there. <laughs> it's heading there. It's really not. I, I think. Actually, I love the energy of this particular track. I like I like the melody and I like the call and answer on it. Yeah, it's it's kind of fluffy lyrically and uh, but there's something about that bridge when he sings. You don't know, and you're listening to the backing part. I would listen to the instrumental part to that kind of the backing of the bass and the throbbing bass and the and the and the drums. Something's going on there that drives that song and for me it's kind of very sexual the whole thing the song is oh it, it very it even I mean, has a line in there making love to only you i mean making love for that to only 1963 i think it's kind of a, um, it's a lot more than holding hands yeah i think you're right <laughs> i think it's i think it's kind of a pretty hot track for 1964 63 Great. whenever they recorded that that's um uh, and it's a great vocal from Paul, except where he's almost kind of veering off. But I think that that kind of adds to to the legend of it. I don't think it, it it's something I can sit there and kind of go, hmm, okay. But look at it this way. 
how many songs they've recorded in a day, and you're there rocking out. It rocks. It's got great energy. Like I said, it's not considered a great classic or anything, but it really fills this album nicely. I, I'd never skip over the track because I just like the way they perform it, and I love, I love that bridge. It's a great bridge, and it just drives it home. So McCartney's quote on this is, I can't remember much about that one. Certain songs were just work songs. You haven't got much memory of them. That's one of them. It was a bit Shirelles. And then Lennon says, it was a pretty poor song. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, in some ways, it was. So anyway. So next we have another amazing cover. Mm-hmm. Of you really got a hold on me. What's going on, Jeff? What's the problem? Oh, I just spilled some coffee. Oh, on your floor. <laughs> Sorry, I knocked it over oh there my with my God. foot. Yes, I knocked it over with my foot. I apologize for that. Because <laughs> so it's getting into your now that it's seeping into your carpet here. I can't take you anywhere. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> it told me that I needed more sleep, but uh, uh, I'll tell you what. Why don't you talk about? You really got a hold on me while I go get something. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk about You Really Got a Hold on Me. This is a, a classic a cover song of, written, of course, by the great Smokey Robinson uh, or William Robinson. And um, he sings, um, I don't like you, but I love you. Seems that I'm always thinking of you. Oh, ho, ho. You treat me badly. I love you madly. You really got a hold on me. What a great track. It is, it is totally, totally Motown. And John sending up that Motown. And they did a great job of it. I could listen to that. And you hear, you can hear George and Paul clearly doing backups on it and how much they enjoyed it uh, covering that song. So as far as covers songs go, I think this is the one um, probably of, of all the cover songs on here, this is my personal favorite. And why? Because it's just got that great call and answer. It's got a great feel to it. And it's got the great guitar riff. You can hear good guitar work from, from George Harrison. And all the voices are in great, great harmony on the song. And to me, it stands out as a great John Lennon lead. Uh, and you really can't get much better than that. Uh, you really got to hold on me is something that... Uh, I would imagine it's still played all over the place, but I'm also um, tr playing tribute to uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles uh, because they helped set the stage for all this. Uh, Motown, we have to give him a lot of credit because his version is pretty similar in in its tone. I think that Smokey Robinson himself was is a great, great vocalist, a great singer, so... Um, the Beatles pay a great tribute to him by trying to emulate that same kind of energy and that same kind of soulful feel. <laughs> I'm back from cleaning the carpet. Wait yes. a minute, Jeffrey, you're never drinking coffee up here again. Oh, Lord. Jesus. <laughs> I should have put it on the floor. I, I love, real, you really got a hold of me. Yeah. It's just, uh, John's voice is magnificent. It's um, very sexy. It's very sexy from a female perspective. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think Smokey should be very proud of that song. Um, I'm sure he is. He, I think he'll, hopefully he made a lot of money on it, too, uh, being covered by these guys. Uh, and 
We follow that with... I want to be your man. I want to be your man. Macho song for inspired by or requested. Was it requested by the Stones? No, or? no, no, no. It was uh, mostly a Paul song, and it was really in in mind for Ringo. Oh, right. And uh, what they did is that I think that uh, Andrew Oldham, the Rolling Stones manager, happened to be at a session, and the Beatles went over and had a part of this song, and we're playing it for Mick and Keith and the boys because they weren't quite uh, huge yet. They were having some success, but they weren't um, big stars yet, and and they started playing for it, and they said, if you like this, we'll finish it, and they finished it right in front of them, and I think they, they said that the Rolling Stones were like, oh, my God, that's great. We need to write our own songs, and so... So, this is, so this is jaws song. dropping, jaws dropping. They think, oh my gosh, yo, they're writing they and it's that it easy. It's that easy. It looks, it make, they make it look easy. Well, easy for John and Paul. So they had it for Ringo on this album, and then the Stones also recorded it and it was their first hit. Okay. And that was their first w- hit. What do you think of the song? What do I think? <laughs> I think it's. Um, it's a nice bluesy number. It's good for Ringo or good for his voice at the time. He, he still performs it today in his uh, Ringo Star and the All-Stars shows, lowers the key. I think it's got a great kind of energy to it. Uh, the song itself is just an attempt to be a rock and roll blues song. It's it's very, very simple. Uh, but a Ringo, I think, I read a review once that said that it was almost his lack of vocal talent that gave it its power because it sounds very raw and so it gives it a kind of raw energy and what's great about it is that it gives you a chance to hear vocals from each beetle on this record uh you'll notice that and i think that was important and that was important i think that we, when you're introducing the uh the band uh and this also was a, appeared on the meet the beatles version but you're hearing all four singers all four of them can sing to varying degrees of ability but they all sing and and it ties back to attracting the girls, the young girls, where their favorite Beatle has a presence that they can hear Ringo sing or George or whoever they were fancying. Mm-hmm. But what John said about I Want to Be Your Man, he said it was, quote, I Want to Be Your Man was a kind of lick Paul had. It was a throwaway. The only two versions of the song were Ringo and the Rolling Stones. That shows how much importance we put on it. We weren't going to give them anything great, right? And again, it's from John's 1980 uh, Playboy interview, and he was a little harsh on some of these songs in, in general, I feel. Well, yeah, he was, always, he, he, he was a critic of their own work, of course, and he's in, he was entitled to, to be that. Uh, but I think it worked well for the Stones. It helped uh, kick them up a notch and establish them. So, and this also them. gave an entry song for for Ringo to sing on tour, right? And in the notes that I was reading about, it was uh, something that was um, answered by Bob Dylan. Wrote a song called "I Want to Be Your Lover," but it was never released until 1985. Mm. <laughs> Bob Bob in response to the Beatles. Yeah, of course. All right, but uh, speaking of that, there's something almost devilish. Um, there's another cover song on this album, Devil in Her Heart. Uh, and this song was, again, one of those songs 
that they found in the NEMS record store. It was obscure, written by a guy named Richard Drapkin, and was performed by a girl group called the Donays. But it was not a big hit in the United States, but they listened to it, they liked it, and they tried it out. And it was originally Devil in His Heart, so they changed it to Devil in Her Heart. And actually, as far as cover songs go, I think it's pretty good. So no, 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 this I can't believe. And it's a, another one of those call and answer songs that they were good with. They could all showcase their vocals. Yeah, a fun song to listen to. A fun song. It, it's not, you know, out, totally outstanding, but I think it fits within, great within, as far as Beatle covers go, fits right in with their style. Then we have Not a Second Time, which is, John says, completely his song. Yeah, it is. It's obviously completely his song, and... For my money, which we'll get to money, uh, that is probably for me as a al- song on the album, my personal favorite right now because not a second time it was totally um, confessional. It's John and his moods, and uh, it's not a totally positive song. It's about you're giving me the same old line. I'm wondering why he means he's his critical self, critical John in there, and and the drumming on it with the drum riffs that Ringo plays. Everything about, and then you hear the the piano. I believe that I don't know who's playing. Who's playing that? Is that George Martin or is that a is that a Paul? It's George Martin. It's George Martin. Yeah, he added that piano part on it. It's got a great melody. You know, you made me cry. I'm gonna use some running. Why? What? A, I think it's one of the best songs on the record as far as the song goes. Does it really fit within the uh, the happy the, the happy tone of it? No. Just like Don't Bother Me, but I think it's sort of a companion song to Don't Bother Me, except that this is a better song and a great song by John. It's self-revealing. It is... uh, It tells you a lot about who John is or what he was at the time. It's a hint of what was to come Mm -hmm. with John, of how he can write these uh, very songs that are telling you more than what you're hearing, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting in in England where the Beatles started to get um, agreement and uh, support from the establishment is when William Mann, who was a London Times critic, he made the the remark, and I'll just get to it, it's, it's natural in the Aeolian cadence at the end of Not a Second Time, and it's like the Beatles are like, what? It because sounds like exotic birds. That's they, weren't, they, uh, yeah. they didn't weren't trained musicians to read music, well, so- but it was... It was very pretentious. Oh, yeah. I would love to try an Aeolian cadence. Even I don't really know what that is. So what does it tell you? What do I know? But uh, this album, I'm sure, made them a lot of money. And that's what John Lennon wanted. He said, money, that's what I want, which is uh, the last song on With the Beatles, which was written by um, Barry Gordy of of Motown. Motown Records fame and his receptionist, Janie Bradford. And it was originally sung... uh, by an R&B artist at the time named Barrett Strong. And what I love about this particular cover, the way it closes this album, is that John openly stated that he wanted to become rich and famous. That was a goal. He wanted to get in music because he believed he could make money on it, and they did. And and But the vocal on it, it just tears you up at the end, especially when he does that famous Lennon scream. And uh, on Barrett Strong's version, which is very good, uh, and very similar in, in the punchy arrangement of it. But he sings, I want that lean green. He makes up a line there. But Lennon instead substitutes, I want to be free. And with that scream, 
uh, at the end that only he could pull off. And what a great vocal. It just, he, you wants money and you believe him. He wants it badly. And, and, and you have G- uh, George and Paul, especially Paul, that that's what I want, you know, and Paul doing his, his bluesiest voice as well. And they really just ripped into that song and, and, and made it strong and, uh, it's a good closer, I think, for the British uh, album. It's a good cover for them to do, and a perfect another perfect vehicle for Lennon. So then we are talking about "I Want to Hold Your Hand," which was released, I believe, a week later, November twenty ninth, nineteen sixty three. And this is the, the one of the songs that um, was written at uh, Dr. Richard Asher's house, which was Paul's girlfriend's home where he became a lodger and living there. And this is a song that, uh, as Lennon has said, was was written eyeball to eyeball, guitar to guitar, mm-hmm. and where they're truly collaborating and working with each other. And so um, you have this, uh, I guess that John said that the, the song started with a, the chord and um, it just made the song. And so what he said is he said, we were in Jane Asher's house downstairs in the cellar playing on the piano at the same time. And we had, oh, you got that something. And then Paul hits this chord. And I turned to him and say, that's it. I said, do that again. In those days, we really used to absolutely write like that, both playing into each other's noses. And so when George Martin heard this, I think uh, another version of him being thunderstruck and also, what's important about I Want to Hold Your Hand is that the Beatles were very frustrated with the sound of the albums, which is the American albums had a louder volume. There was much more power in the pressing of the album. Mm-hmm. And the Beatles oh. wanted that. And so here, they were actually, I think, using compressor to control the dynamic range of the song. And right. they also were able to isolate the drums from the bass mm-hmm. and that gave it more power and they just kept wanting more volume and more volume and ultimately got to that with I want to hold your hand. Oh yeah. Uh and that recording uh that's why that particular single, which is the one that I mentioned earlier that uh Epstein had wanted uh Capital to promote, which they ended up doing, became such a monster single. So they uh, took that and eventually of course that is what starts off because such a powerful song that they start off meet the Beatles with that uh, so that's a that recording is a great recording and from start to finish it's you know it's a hit you just hear it and oh yeah I'll tell you something I think you'll understand you know John loved to suggest and hint at things and he was really good at that at the power of suggestion. It sold 1.5 million copies in the United Kingdom. Unbelievable. That's a lot of people in England, in well, Great Britain. It was released as a single in the U.S. in January 13th, 1964. And it was the group's, the Beatles' first U.S. top 40 hit. Uh, I mean, it's just, when you heard that, and the hand claps, everything mm-hmm. that they did in that song the hand was claps, just... Right. It's a monster single uh, and a monster song. And became their first number one, which they learned about when they were in Paris, mm-hmm. having to do shows and record 
German versions of She Loves You and I Want to Hold And they were in Paris and they were all sitting around the table and there's Brian Epstein with a chamber pot on his head. You know, they're really celebrating. It was unbelievable. That was their goal to become number one in the United States. And they did. So it got to number one. And I think that uh, Capital in its wisdom was really smart in the way they arranged the, uh, their introduction up to the American audience of the Beatles. And my introduction to them was this album, which basically cut out, I think four of the cover songs. They only left in till there was you and thought the American audience would be more impressed with the songwriting of these young men. And they were right. Uh, and the sound quality, as far as I'm concerned, I compared the two. I went and listened to the, the sound like you were talking about the compression. And you can kind of hear it on with the Beatles. But when you play um, the Capitol album's uh, release that was put out, everything sounds louder, punchier. The vocals are more fully present. Uh, and you're totally, totally engaged in those songs. Uh, and they kept the order almost pretty much the same. But they threw in... Uh, it leads off with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Right. I Saw Her Standing There, which again is another song that was is just powerful. Blows your mind. In the bass riff, the drums, his vocal, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, you're a young girl in 1964 with this album looking at these boys and then hearing this and you know what? Your mind is blown. Your mind you're is blown. And you're, your mind is <laughs> you blown. You are dumb. You were going to scream. Yeah. The rest of your life, you can't get them out of your head. <laughs> and Capital was smart enough to take this boy, which is like sort of like a like almost homage like, to the Everly Brothers. Homage to the yes. Everly Brothers. And it's almost, you know, I almost think of it as like a modern, like the modern boy band. I mean, they were polished and cleaned up when they came to the U.S. with the suits and everything. They were rough boys before that. So, um, and this was a perfect presentation, this boy. And then they go into, it won't be long. All I got to do, all my loving, don't bother me. The, the, all the order is kept very much the same. And it ends with not a second time, which I thought was a great ending to the album of Meet the Beatles. So basically they, they, they left until there was you. And there was a strategic decision because again, they played that for at Sullivan. They played the London Palladium. So they left that one in as a contrast, but the rest of the album intact is completely American version. Uh, not to knock the British one because it's, it's it's fantastic, but the American version introduced the American audience, meaning you're like yours truly at age seven to the Beatles, and that was a bust introduction. I think I can imagine. I I was totally mind blown by that. If you look at the number one in Paris, uh, number one in the United States. Uh, and for like 50 weeks, I mean, it was, it's just. 50? Really no, I'm, that I'm not, long? Uh, I think the song, I want to hold your hand. We'd have to, I'd have to double check. There's it's a lot of information. There's a lot of information. Uh, but, but here, here's some interesting things about, I want to hold your hand. We know the legend that Bob Dylan thought that they were saying, I can't, I get high, which he was shocked to find out that from Brian Epstein, that they had never smoked pot, uh, at that time, so it wasn't. I I get high. I guess they weren't hipsters enough yet for the, for for old Bob Bob Zimmerman. But uh, and remember, sing uh, this uh, Teddy Pendergrass, the um, uh, soul singer from the U.S. Yeah, uh, he was a junior high school student, and he said that um, I want to hold your hand. Brought the Beatles into the black community as a musician. Uh, Pendergrass looked beyond the group's media trademarks, the hair, and the style of dress, and heard the originality 
in their music. He credits the Beatles with inspiring his own musical development and independent growth as a performer. Ah, and that's a great compliment coming from him. Uh, Another one that he admired. Well, there's a mutual admiration society. All I can say is this record, uh, which also I think was culminating in the appearances and between the touring, they completed most of this album in 63, I believe, but then uh, it was repackaged for the American audience because, again, we had to be introduced to them. And what an introduction. Uh, so for, for me, this was the Beatles' first album. Then I went back and retreaded all the other stuff after. You know? So that led to all these, the American versus British versions that uh, followed are, uh, for a while. Which is confusing. Yeah, uh, it was. But, uh, you know, because we think in terms of um, Meet the Beatles and then the second album, which has like money on it and right. the other one. So right. um, uh, listen, this album and what was happening with the Beatles, it was the world perhaps was ripe for this, that we needed something like this, but mm. let's give credit to where credit's due, which is to George Martin for appreciating how to manage and to produce the hits. And not only the, uh, were they producing the hits for the Beatles, but it was also the Liverpool crew that Brian Epstein managed. Uh, Billy, uh, uh, Billy Kramer and the Dakotas or something and right. the other groups as well. And so right. um, they were getting known as songwriters. They were becoming more involved in the recording process. And I believe, what which, what is the song that ends in the sixth? I want to say, is it She Loves You? the chord at the end that uh, George Martin wanted to change and they yeah. would not let him change it. Let me just look at my notes here for a second. Okay. And uh, she loves you. Hmm. Yes, well, that is, it ends in a six, you know, it's a, the, the great chord at the end. Right. And of course in traditional music and Martin's like, no, you can't do that. And they're like, no, that's the hook. And here's McCartney and Lennon understanding this is how you get people in. That is the craft of, songwriting it's also george martin saying you know we're going to start off with the chorus first and then get into the verses which mm-hmm. became quite frequent with some of their songs of the arrangement went beyond the traditional a b a b format sometimes they would use that format the songs were simpler the lyrics were simpler they were about lo- they're about love it's about hello we've got lots of energy please dance please love us please buy our records i mean and yes we did and yes, we love them. And it still sounds fresh. It doesn't sound dated. It really was a total game changer. And by the way, one last point I want to make is that we're thinking of albums. We take them for granted. But the teenage audience at that time and the young audiences did not buy a lot of albums. Albums were reserved for older people that were listening to Frank Sinatra and Mitch Miller and on that kind of thing. And uh, they were buying singles. But what the Beatles did is they totally changed the album market. They didn't, they craved the Beatles so much that they not only bought the singles, but they wanted more. They wanted albums. So that transformed the music industry. I cannot understate this. They transformed the music industry forever since then. Well, and we know that. And they also transformed the people who worked at Abbey Road and EMI. And there's a great anecdote about She Loves You, which is Norman Smith, the engineer, is reading the lyrics and thinking, this isn't very this isn't very good. And then he hears them put it together and to play. And he said he was jogging and dancing in the control room. 
mm-hmm. that if you can turn over the folks who have been recording these this music for a long time, it's again, it's I think of them as a the divine aliens that came in and just totally got into our our consciousness, our mm-hmm. subconsciousness, and here we, you know, as as middle-aged adults, there's still such a part of our life that we are spending this time to devote to our love of the Beatles. Well, we're still talking about it. Um, and I can tell you that for me, it, it totally changed the way I, I looked at uh, music and entertainment, and uh, it became the template for everything to follow. It well, literally did. It became the excitement of their next song. And they were, again, working under a furious pace of, I think it was like two albums and three... Frantic pace. Three singles a year. So they learned quickly to deal with pressure and and young And energetic and touring constantly in between. Constantly appearances. And then coming up with a movie that was coming up, right? In short order. 1964 is an insanely busy year. And I can't wait to talk about the next uh, project. But Well, maybe we'll do that. Maybe the next time we'll focus on the year of 1964. What a year. I mean, for it changed, it changed pop music. They were, they were a rock and roll pop band. They did it all. They proved they could do it all. They could write originals. They could cover the and they could cover the um, best covers of the day. They could do Motown. There was no, they were unstoppable. Well, I think that's what we'd like to say about uh, with the Beatles, meet the Beatles, um, and our influences and our love of this album and the songs and the Beatles themselves and. Jeff, I'd like to thank you for spilling your entire coffee cup on my carpet, <laughs> which I now have to go back and try to fix. Oh, sorry. But in any case, sorry. thank you so much for listening today to the Thank God for the Beatles podcast. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Anchor, and other platforms. We also have a YouTube channel, so if you want to listen to it on YouTube and look at some pictures from the time of the recording of this album... Uh, please check it out, subscribe, and do all that good stuff. We really appreciate all our current listeners and uh, welcome. We we enjoy. We hope that you're enjoying this as much as we do because, like I said, these podcasts are generally within a phrase of an hour. But you realize that once you get going, we can keep talking, and that's what we're going to do in future episodes. Well, perhaps we're just windbags. But on that note, yeah, <laughs> we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye bye. Right. Bye bye now. <laughs>